Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. We're a couple weeks off from starting our 40 Days for Fullness adventure this fall. Uh, We've got people who are working on the daily devotional content. That's getting wrapped up. We've got discussion group, kind of small group times that are being finalized. Um, And as as I'm thinking about what we're hoping to all do together, this 40 day experiment, uh, I suppose the question could come up, well, why are we doing this for 40 days? That seems like an awful long commitment uh, to make. And, um, and the reason we're doing 40 days is because 40 is a biblical number. So I thought it would be fun to talk about uh, this today, talk a little bit about biblical numerology and, and, uh, and this idea that maybe specific numbers have significant uh, meanings or, or symbolic meanings in Scripture um, and, and that sometimes in noticing numbers or noticing patterns of numbers, uh, you can discern this uh, symbology and, and understand these meanings that can you know, be inspiring and, and helpful uh, for you trying to follow Jesus as, as a, as a modern, modern day follower of Jesus. Um, but before we get into all of that, one, one thing that I will uh, say is when you talk about things like this, like biblical numbers... Uh, it can mean something significant to you if you want to embrace the ideas, if you want to dig into this stuff. Um, at, at the same time, I really believe that you can have a very full and complete life. You can be a faithful follower of Jesus without, without doing a deep dive into, into biblical numerology. Uh, in the same way that you could have a full and complete life without having ever you know, visited the island of Maui. But, um, but for those who have visited the island of Maui, they go, yeah, I'm really glad I did that. And so uh, if you're interested in jumping into these kinds of topics, I think you'd, you'd be, you'd, you wouldn't be sorry that you did. Um, another thing I should add to this is I am in no way an expert on Bible numbers. Um, I, I attended a, well, every year we attend a, a prayer summit, local church leaders and, and people head over to Cannon Beach to pray together for a week. And and I usually don't go for a full week because uh, that's way too much prayer for me. But I'll go for usually a couple days. I hardly ever miss. And actually, people in our community have been doing this for, I think, over 30 years. So it's, it's pretty great. Um, anyhow, we had a speaker a couple of years ago who was like a Bible number expert. And every time he turned around, he was pulling out you know some other number and some other meaning and, and all of that stuff. He's an expert. I'm not... An expert. I think the symbolism that you can get to in this stuff is, you can go as deep as, as you know, the the hole that Alice tumbled down in, you know, the rabbit's hole to, to Wonderland. Like it, I, I, and I've heard plenty of things that maybe sound a little bit more like voodoo than Christian faith. Um, but I, I also want to just acknowledge that the more that I read about some of this stuff, or the more that I, I look into it, there there really is some pretty fruitful and, and interesting things. Um, so if any of you are looking for a new hobby. Uh, start diving into this stuff. Um, the idea that numbers might have significance beyond just simple math for us is it's not anything 
uh, foreign to us. I mean, numbers, we're, we're familiar with the idea of numbers meaning something. Like 13 is a number that means something, especially if you're superstitious. You know, Friday the 13th might be a day that you would not have a dentist appointment on or, or you know, lucky number seven. If, if you're a, an NBA, a basketball fan, the number 23 means something to you, right? Number 23. If you're not a basketball fan, you're shaking your head right now. You're like, 23, I have no idea. Greatest basketball player who ever lived. Um, and then in your own personal life, you probably have numbers that mean something significant to you. You know, 920 means something very significant to me because on September 20th, that was the day I got married. Uh, we had a 20th anniversary this year. So I, I don't know what happened to Laura, but she should get a round of applause for living with me for... 20 years. Um, yeah, we got away to the beach last weekend. It was so great. Mackenzie covered teaching for us, and the, the worship people did their thing, and, and that was great. Um, but, man, we had a really good weekend out at Cannon Beach. Beautiful sunset Friday, beautiful sunset Saturday, two sunsets in a row at the beach in September. You know, the Lord is with us. Um, anyhow, in scriptures, so the number 40 is used to, to symbolize... I'm going to use the word fullness of time today. Uh, I, was, I was tempted to call it enough time, but saying it symbolizes enough time doesn't, doesn't really roll off the tongue like fullness of time does, especially when we're going into a fullness, 40 days for fullness series. So, um, but the idea is that 40 is, is enough time for whatever it was that was happening. You know, why did it rain for 40 days and nights to start off Noah's flood? Well, because that was, that was how long it took to, you know, to flood. Well, why are there 365 days in a year? Well, because that's how many days it takes for a year. Why does a football game have four quarters? I don't know, because that's, that's, that's the right amount of time. So in Scripture, the number 40 will show up to symbolize that a particular activity has been fulfilled, a certain obligation is, has been fulfilled, that enough time has passed to complete this specific period of time or this specific event. Uh, and now that this is done, it's time for the next thing. And so some, if, you're, if you start researching some of this stuff, you might come across, oh, the number of 40 symbolizes it's time for a new season or it's a time for a new beginning. And it all has to do with this idea that enough time has passed. We're ready for whatever comes next. So in Scripture, Mo- Moses left Egypt at 40 years old. And then he spent 40 years in the wilderness as a shepherd. And then God met him at the burning bush and he was called by God at 80 years old to, to go and deliver Egypt. You know, how many of you would like to get your assignment from God at 80 years old that is a 40-year commitment to lead a group of people? Maybe, maybe I would. Um, when they come out of Egypt, Moses goes up onto the mountain for 40 days to meet with God, 40 days and nights. And, and that's when he initially gets the law that God gives him. That's Exodus chapter 24 to 32, if you want to read about it. And then he comes down from the mountain, and there's this golden calf incident. The people of Israel made a, an idol. And, uh, and after all that, Moses has to end up going back up on the mountain for another 40 days to spend time with God. Then because of Israel's sin, they're, they're wandering in the desert. They've disobeyed God with a golden calf and disobeyed God's command to go into the promised land and all that. They end up spending 40 years wandering in the wilderness. The prophet Elijah went on a 40-day journey once without 
without food or food to go and meet God on Mount Horeb. Uh, the first three kings of Israel, each of them reigned for 40 years each. Uh, there was this Old Testament law that limited corporal punishment to 40 lashes, 40 uh, you know, strikes with the whip. And, and the idea behind the law was you don't give any more than 40. God said, don't give any more than 40 because if you do, you will degrade your brother. And so this law is trying to, to, to delineate for people who are interested in punishment. It's trying to say, here's the difference between effective behavior modification, punishment, and abuse. Where's the line between abuse and effective punishment? Well, it's 40. <laughs> 40 is enough. 41 is just obscenely degrading. So, um, the, the, interestingly, over, over, uh, by the time, you know, Jesus' time came, so the, the tradition of the Jewish elders, the religious leaders, was they would only give 39 lashes just in case they miscounted. They didn't want to give someone 41 by accident, so they cut it at 39. And, and, uh, and instantly, I'm, I'm feeling very uh, evolved and mature in my discipline tactics <laughs> over my brothers and sisters from ages ago. Uh, Jesus fasted for 40 days and nights right before his temptation. And then after his resurrection, he appeared to his disciples for a period of 40 days before he ascended to heaven. So as we kind of rattle off these occurrences of the number 40 in Scripture, I want you to keep in mind the significance of this number isn't so much about that it's, it's one more than 39 or it's one less than 41 or it's you know evenly divisible by four or two or eight or, or, or any of that. It's not so much in the amount of the numbers we think of it, but it's in the idea that after 40, enough time has passed that we're ready for what is next. 40 is enough to result in the kind of change that's needed to move on. 40 is enough to result in, in the fullness of what, of someone's experience, the fullness of their experience now making them ready to move on to the next, uh, the next season or the next, the next thing. So again, if this is where if you look it up, like some people will say, oh yeah, 40 represents like new seasons or newness of life and, and uh, stuff like that. So Moses is ready to come down off of the mountain after he's spent the full 40 days there. But the second time Moses had to go up for 40 days after the golden calf, he comes down from the mountain after 40 days and his face is beaming. It's radiating with the glory of God. The, the scriptures say he had to put a he had to put a veil over his face because the people were freaked out. His face is glowing. Uh, he had been completely changed by a period of forty days with God. Israel was ready to go and enter the promised land after forty years of of testing in the wilderness. A generation that had grown up in the wilderness, learning to trust God for their daily food and to trust Him in in battle and things like that, is now the generation. After 40 days of time in the wilderness, they're now the generation that's ready to go into uh, the land and, and possess it. Um, I bring up the 40 days in, in the wilderness, or 40 years in the wilderness in the nation of Israel, and, and a lot of times scripture talks about that like a time of testing. And so if you were looking up the number 40 in scripture, you did a Google search, this is another theme you might find is that, yeah, 40 is the number of testing. Um, I don't love the word test because. I think a lot of times when people hear the word test nowadays, they think trap, like um, like a pop quiz, right? Uh, I, I took a developmental psychology class at LCC a lifetime ago, 
And, uh, and it, Laura actually took it with me. So we were newlyweds going to college together. It was so romantic. And, uh, and we're in this class together. And we come in one night. And the instructor, who was usually a, a friendly and gregarious gentleman, his, his entire countenance is different. And, and he seems angry, and we kind of come in and we sit down, and he starts class, and he's like, it has come to my attention that some of you have not been doing the required reading. So clear your desks off, put all your, all your books and stuff under the desk, get out a piece of paper and a pencil. As I'm saying this, I realize the young people in the room are like, paper and a pencil? What, did you go to college in the Stone Age? Yes, I did. It was the Stone Age back then. And, uh, and I'm going to give you a pop quiz. And so, I mean, you know, my heart just drops. As, as an, an achiever, A, earning student who was not doing the required reading, I'm like, darn it. I'm caught, right? It's a trap, and I've walked right into it. I should have gone home, and I did not do well on the test at all. Um, in fact, a, a girl left the room crying because uh, she apparently hadn't been doing the required reading either. And... Um, <laughs> So when she leaves the room crying, I don't know, we were like partway through the test, so maybe not remembering it entirely correctly. But then the instructor owns up that this is all a ruse. It's just a psychological experiment to see how we deal with stress. <laughs> so he went out into the hallway to comfort the gal, and it was just, it was really funny. Um, anyways, when you hear the word test, you think of that, right? Like, here is my chance to show you that you haven't been doing your homework. And I think sometimes we just have this idea in the back of our minds about God that if he's testing me, it's because he knows that there's something in there that he wants to confront me on. And, and there might be some truth to that, but I think by and large when the scriptures talk about testing, they don't mean it like a pop quiz. They mean it more like, like testing, uh, like what Boeing does with an airplane before they send it into regular service for commercial flights. So I have an uncle who works worked as an engineer for Boeing. He's retired now. And I think I've told this story at church before because it's one of my most like fun fact, interesting things to bring up. But he worked as an engineer, and one of the things that he got to do over the course of his employment there was to go up in the brand new airplanes and test them. And, and they take these airplanes, and the engineers are sitting there with their, I don't know, scientific calculators and pieces of paper, because this is in the Stone Age, too. And the, and the pilots will do, like, they'll do intentional stalls, so, like, climb straight into the air till the plane stalls, and then see how they can do to pull out of it. And they do, like, barrel rolls and stuff and, and somersaults. And they just fly all around crazy with these planes to make sure that before it goes into commercial flight, it's ready to go. Now, isn't that a comforting thought when you get on? This is how I feel when I sit on a plane and there's a little bit of turbulence. I say to myself, this plane has been through so much more than this. And it survived that, so it's going to be just fine in this. It's a, it's a comforting thought when I fly. Hopefully, it'll be a comforting thought for you too now. Um, anyhow, I think that idea more accurately helps, more accurately describes what, what a biblical test is like. This isn't like a I gotcha and, and now everyone's going to see how terrible you are. It's a, look, I know that you have, I know who you are. I know that you've put the work in, and I am giving you an opportunity to, to, to get some credit for the work that you've done and to be ready for the next thing that you have going on 
in life. This kind of this kind of testing allows you to hone your knowledge. You know, I, I would imagine uh, the test pilots who are flying these planes around like this are the are the ones that would be really really good at landing that plane under any circumstances. It's, it's it's to show that this knowledge has now prepared you for the next thing. Um, so I don't think it's a coincidence, considering all of this, that it's after Jesus fasted for 40 days and nights that he was then ready for one of the biggest challenges, one of the biggest tests that he faced in his ministry. You can turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, and we'll be reading about this together for the rest of our the rest of our time today. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for um, your heart for us, uh, to teach us, to grow us, to stretch us, to train us, um, to use the circumstances of our lives to make us more like Jesus. As we turn to a story about Jesus today, we just pray that your spirit would illuminate our minds and, uh, and draw us into the reality of who you are and the change that can happen in our hearts as a response to that. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Verse 2, After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Obviously. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. What's one result of 40 days of fasting? Well, one result is you will probably be hungry. Jesus is hungry, and so the devil comes to him in what would seem like a moment of weakness and says to him, Use your divine power to feed yourself, to turn these stones into bread. Verse 4, but Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. How does Jesus answer like this? How does he not just fall in and take the bait? Well, I think one is because 40 days of fasting leaves his, his belly empty, yes, for sure. But it also gives him a different perspective. He remembers through the discipline of fasting, and actually we're going to talk about fasting next week. Um, and I've, here I've already used this verse. What a waste. We might do it again next week. You guys won't even remember what I talked about this time we get to next week anyway, so it'll work out fine. Anyways, he says, his belly might be empty, right? But he's been living this reality for 40 days that man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God's mouth. And so now, after 40 days, after a fullness of time doing that, he's ready for this test. He's been eating true and spiritual food. And so his spirit is full in a way that will cause his spirit to overcome the appetites of his family. So he's ready when he's tempted. Verse 5, so the devil takes him to the holy city and has him stand on the highest point of the temple and says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you strike your foot, so you will not strike your foot against a stone. This, I, you know, you read this this week, and it hit me for the first time. I've read this story before. Maybe it's familiar to many of you. But I was struck by the idea of the devil quoting one of the Psalms as a messianic psalm and saying, this is describing Jesus Christ. Like, how much truth can the father of lies weave into something? 
Like, mind-boggling truth, especially to be doing this now. It's different when, you know, for the last 2,000 years, Christian minds have been dissecting the Old Testament, looking for the Messiah in the Old Testament. And, like, the devil's way ahead of his time and scholarship here, saying this is a messianic psalm. But when he does, he's saying to Jesus this, this idea, like, Hey, Jesus, look, you're, you, you know, I know, look, you're born in poverty. You've been living in irrelevance. Like, here is your moment to show everyone who you are, to show off a little bit. Take matters into your own hands and, and claim for yourself the, the thing that God has already said you are. Show everyone that you're the Messiah. Don't, don't bother with whatever God's long-term plan is for revealing you to the world as the Messiah. Do it for yourself now. Now, when I say that phrase, do it for yourself now, and you think of the devil presenting that opportunity to humanity, does that sound familiar in any way to another story in Scripture? Take matters into your own hands. Reach out and take for yourself the very thing that God's wanting to give you over time. Does that sound familiar at all? Let's just talk about Adam and Eve and the tree in the garden, right? The forbidden fruit, the knowledge of good and evil, where God's intention was to walk with humanity. And allow them to understand good and evil relationally through a relationship with him. They would come to know what was good and evil by trusting God and obeying him. And the devil comes and says, skip all of that. Take the shortcut. The tree's right there. Take it for yourself. And where Adam failed, Jesus excelled. I wrote that line this morning. It's so good. Where Adam failed, Jesus excelled. Yeah. You know it's true because it rhymes, right? Um, (laughs) Jesus answers him and he says, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus knows there's this long history of people not obeying God. I think that lines maybe from Deuteronomy where uh, rebellion has happened and Moses is reminding the people like, don't through the commands, don't put the Lord your God to the test like they did, like the people did before. Jesus knows there's this long, long history of generation after generation of humanity stepping aside from God's path, reaching out with their own hand to take what they think is theirs. Um, And while there may be a a very human desire in Jesus' heart to, to rule and to reign, and while he knows that that is his destiny that God has appointed him for, there is also in him, after the fullness of time with the Father, after spending 40 days and nights fasting and praying and spending time, he knows the Father's heart is trustworthy. He knows the Father's plan, no matter how costly it may be for him. He knows this is a good plan. I mean, how else is humanity ever going to believe and, and know that God is love? unless Jesus takes the time to demonstrate it through his daily ministry and then ultimately through his death on the cross. How is humanity going to know unless Jesus is on the cross saying to all of humanity for all of time, this is who God is. God is the one who would rather lay down his life than see you dead in your sin. God is the one who invites you to share freely in his own eternal life, that you know, well clothed in human form, Jesus overcomes sin and death when he's resurrected from the grave. And it's like he's saying to all of humanity, look, your destiny as a human being is to be clothed in the divine life of God, to live forever in God's divine life. It's not one to end in sin and death. So Jesus trusts the Father's plan is good. He has this clarity in his mind after the fullness of time to to face this question and say, no, 
That is not true. I'm not falling for this trick like every other human has in the course of history. I am going to stick with the Father because I know him. And he's ready for the last round of temptation. Verse 8, again the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, and then says, all this I will give to you if you'll bow down and you'll worship me. It would be impossible to know how the devil conceptualized what it was that God is trying to accomplish in Jesus Christ. Uh, I think there's areas of that that maybe the, the, you know, the, the mind of evil glimpsed into, and then there's areas of it they were totally confounded by. We know that for sure. Um, but it's like he's saying to Jesus in this moment, hey, let's, let's set aside even the whole Jewish Messiah thing. And go straight to this idea that Jesus has been given a name that's above all other names. That he is the one who will rule over all of creation. He says, let's skip straight to that. You're supposed to be a forerunner for the new humanity. Well, let me promote you to that place. Forget the Father's costly plan, whatever it is to get you there. Let me promote you to that place, ruling over all the kingdoms of the world. And and you can have that today. For a low, low price of just kneeling and worshiping me. Jesus says to him, away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I think after a fullness of time that had been set aside by Jesus to seek the Father's heart. It it helps to develop when you spend that kind of time with the Lord, when you, when you have a taste of how good God is, when you're offered the counterfeits or the shortcuts or those kinds of things, it doesn't have the same kind of hold. It doesn't have the same kind of temptation. When you've basked in the glory of God for a long period of time, there's this fullness that can only be felt in fellowship with the Father. And, and your soul is satisfied and and you know that there is only one place this could ever come from and anyone who would come and try to offer you another opportunity or a different way to be fulfilled you just know that's a lie it's not true and Jesus is in this place where he spent you know 40 days the fullness of time fasting and praying tapping into that relationship with the father and he says i know that nothing else compares to this. He can look at all the kingdoms of the world, the glory, maybe throughout the ages. Who knows how that looked or what that was like. Um, But he sees it all and he says, there is only one for me. I will worship God alone. Psalm 62 comes to mind. The, The psalmist says, for God alone, I will wait in silence. Because from him comes my salvation. For he alone is my rock and my salvation, and my fortress, and I shall not be shaken. Think our connection to God, your connection to God, is meant to be the kind of thing that is like a fortress around you. Particularly when you're walking through life and you're facing disappointments or or temptations or things not working out how you think they should. God means for you to share in fellowship with Him in the kind of way that when you're faced with those things, there would be something in your core that's unshakably connected to Him and trusting Him and knowing that, that somewhere in all of this, His goodness is greater 
than anything else. That's like a fortress you get to hide in. Jesus is, I see him hiding in that place throughout this temptation, right? Verse 11, then the devil left him and angels came and ministered to him and the test is over and Jesus is ready for what comes next. He goes from here and in Matthew 4, he goes on to launch his public ministry. You know, as we're going to do this experiment together over the next, uh, starting on October 15th, um, we're, <laughs> we're going to run October 15th to, to the, the Sunday after, uh, the Sunday after, um, the Sunday after uh, Thanksgiving, that holiday we have, right? Sunday after Thanksgiving, which is actually 42 days, right? Six weeks is 42 days. And, uh, and this is what I love because uh, it's, yeah, it's 42 days. We're calling it 40 days because... Don't get caught up on how many 40 is away from 42. And uh, anyways, it's about fullness, right? The fullness of time. But, but my prayer is that as we do this together, that, that when you find yourself uh, maybe in the aftermath or during the course of these days, when you find yourself tempted by hunger, by appetites for anything the world would have to offer other than God, that, that you would feel this stirring in your soul. You would remember, ah, we are not meant to live by bread alone. We're meant to be living by the words that come out of God's mouth. You remember those things. Remember what you're, you're created for. That when you're faced with the deeper questions of, of your identity and who is it that God's called you to be and, and what, is, you know, what is this supposed to be of, you, you'll hear a stirring in your soul. You'll feel an anchoring to that time you've spent with God. You'll remember who it is that God has made you to be. You'll trust the Father's plan in your life, that He has good plans for you. And then the alternative plans and the shortcuts just won't have the same kind of, of hold on you. And when you're tempted to, to worship anything else, to ascribe value or worthiness to things, to prioritize things over that time with the Lord, over His relationship with you, when you're tempted in those ways, that, that inside of you, you would remember the one who loves you and calls you by name. You'll remember those moments that you've had where you, you've tasted and you've seen that God is good, that there's no one like our God, not a single person at all. And, and through the discipline of spending the fullness of time intentionally pursuing that connection with God, that, that you'll be transformed, you'll be changed. Uh, so we're a, a couple weeks out. Like I said, we're, we're wrapping up the content. We're going to send out uh, a form this week that's like a, a sign-up form uh, because, uh, you know, what is it? Like a goal is, you know, 150% more likely to happen if you write it down or something like that. So giving you an opportunity to say, this is how I'm going to participate. I'm going to do the daily devotional. I'm going I'm to 40 days, seriously 42 days, 42 days, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do every day. It's not, the devotional is not going to be a huge, a huge time commitment. Uh, you know, we're talking maybe 15 to 30 minutes a day of just uh, uh, content for you to work through, pray through, reflect on. Um, and, and then the other piece of that, we've talked about it, but an opportunity to, to commit to a, a weekly discussion group or a small group of people talking together about it. Uh, I'm going to be doing a discussion group uh, down here on Wednesdays. We'll be in the in the cafe, I think, we'll probably get some different chairs for that middle table because those, uh, those swirly stools have gotten pretty treacherous. How many of you have fallen off of one of those stools? Is it only me? Oh, good. Okay. 
a few of you. <laughs> Can't be doing that. Um, but but we'll do a, a discussion group in the cafe on Wednesday night. So it'll be kind of fun because we'll be doing youth group in here. We'll be doing a discussion group out there. I, I'm kind of looking forward to that dynamic. Um, but we've got other, some of our elders, just some other people in the church have, will have, we'll have some other nights offered too, or, or evenings or different times. Um, I know we've talked a little bit about our Thursday morning, uh, guys breakfast at the pancake house, the 6am breakfast turning into a discussion group for this. Uh, we do a, a lunchtime gathering at the three rivers mall on Tuesdays, uh, that we've talked about, uh, turning into a discussion group for this. So trying to give you opportunities to one, commit on a daily level to your time with the Lord, and then two, to bring it into community, to do this together. And so I would say, if, you, if none of the things that we'll offer work out for your schedule, like find one or two other people and say, let's get together on Monday nights, or let's meet on Tuesday after work for a cup of coffee and talking about this experience, uh, going through the discussion questions together and things like that. So anyhow, um, we're two weeks out. You've got 14 days to consider jumping into this, and, uh, and I really hope that you will. Um, that being said, um, let's, let's turn to the Lord's table uh, for some communion and a little more worship today. Will that work? You guys want to come up? Um, we talk about real spiritual food and... Uh, Tyler mentioned as we were starting the service, like how weird things can seem in, in our Christian church life. And, uh, and I think the whole idea of drinking Jesus's blood is like right up there with one of the weirdest, weirdest things we can do. But I've, I've been uh, doing a study on the book of, of Leviticus. And, uh, one of the things that I've learned in this study is uh, the book of Leviticus is this really boring book that comes after Exodus, um, and there's all of these commands in it, and so many of the commands seem, uh, well, pretty antiquated and, and culturally dissonant to what we would expect normal people to do, and, and some of them seem maybe very uh, ticky-tack, like about when you're supposed to wash your hands and things like that. But um, but one of the things that the study has 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 shown me is uh, when God talks about the sacrifices and, uh, and bringing the blood of the animals, he talks about how life is in the blood. And, uh, and in Scripture up to this point, we've learned that uh, whenever a human being has spilled another human being's uh, blood, that it has this uh, polluting effect on, on even on the earth. When, and the first story of murder, when Cain murders his brother Abel, God comes to confront Cain and says... Abel's blood is crying out to me. There's this injustice that's happened and creation has been polluted by it. And, and, so, uh, the, and so then God says, I'm going to give humanity this gift because I'm still determined to come and dwell with them. I'm going to live in this tent in the middle of the Israelites' camp. I'm going to live with them and I'm so determined to come with them. I'm giving them the gift of it works for innocent blood to die on behalf of those who are sinful. And that's going, to, that's going to cover their sin for a time. Of course, that's all pointing to this idea that Jesus would come, the innocent one would come and offer up his blood that contains uh, the, the life is in the blood is the Old Testament uh, concept. Jesus' blood that contains not just the life of the man Jesus, but because of the incarnation, because God clothed himself in flesh, 
the blood of Jesus contains, in that sense, the divine life of God. And he says, I'm going to pour out this this blood to seal a new covenant between God and humanity. One where, where you no longer have to bring the sacrifices. God has now declared, I am no longer counting humanity's sins against them. And it's really weird that, uh, that God would have us consume the elements of that sacrifice, right? We would drink the blood. We would eat the bread that symbolizes Jesus' body. It's so weird that he would tell us to eat that stuff. Except for there is, at least in the ancient world, there's no other way for humanity to, to bring something into themselves and to make it part of themselves other than to eat it i mean i suppose nowadays you know they can plant you know computers in you or sew somebody else's finger on you and they do other things to like make it a part of you but but eating something is the only way that you could take matter that wasn't your own body and turn it into something that was as much a part of you as every other cell of your body and and so i think that when we come to the table It can be helpful for us to have that in mind. That that in these elements, in the the bread that represents Jesus' broken body, in the cup that represents his blood poured out, we, we have the very life of God being offered to us. And we're given an opportunity to come to the table and to eat of that and allow it to become as much a part of us as anything in us is a part of us. And so... As we, as we come to the table today and as we just continue to prepare our hearts for this adventure we're going to have together, this experiment we're going to do this fall, um, just come with that mindset that, uh, that in eating, in the simple act of eating and drinking the, the communion, that you can experience and have the, the fullness of who God is uh, residing in the fullness of who you are. Let's pray. Lord, we are just so grateful that you love us. We're so grateful that you have called us your own, that you have called us your people, that you've called us together. We're thankful that you have appointed this moment today for us to come to the Lord's table and to eat and drink true spiritual life-giving food. And we are thankful for each one who's in the room to eat with us today, along with those who are gathered all around the world to eat together this communal meal. We pray that your spirit would continue to to enlighten our minds, to, to draw our hearts into the reality that you are dwelling in our midst. And that we have nothing more to do than to, than to receive this sacrifice, to eat and to drink, to be fit, to, to have you dwell in our midst, to be in your presence. We thank you for the way that Jesus' sacrifice transforms us and transforms the reality of what it means to be human. And we come into your presence today so grateful. As we close the service, eating together, worshiping together. We just pray that your Holy Spirit would move in a powerful way in our midst. And we would just be transformed by your presence in Jesus' name. Amen.